from New York, this is Democracy Now! It was an Apache firing with a really loud noise. The F-16s fired, the Cobra, the drone, all kinds of aircraft. Terror, terror, so much terror. They wiped out mosques, people, and displaced people. They kept saying, go to Rafa, go to Rafa, and people came here, and then you target them? Palestinian health officials say Israeli strikes on Rafah in southern Gaza have killed at least 67 people overnight. As concern grows, Israel will soon launch a ground invasion. Over a million displaced Palestinians have sought refuge in Rafah. We'll speak with a teacher trying to evacuate Rafah with her young children. Our children, Yanni, they deserve life. You must fire. If they cannot cease fire, just leave us to get out from Gaza to be to be survived. We'll also speak with Palestinian human rights attorney Noura Erekat as the U.S., the European Union, the United Nations and countries around the world warn Israel against a full ground invasion of Rafa. Then... The Poor People's Campaign plans to march on 30 state legislatures to catalyze the voting power of poor and low-wage workers ahead of November's election. speak with Bishop William Barber and economist Michael Zweig, author of Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. It's wonderful to be back. Palestinian health officials say Israeli strikes killed at least 67 people in Rafah overnight. As fears grow, Israel will soon launch a ground invasion of a city where over one million Palestinians have sought refuge. The overnight airstrikes came as Israeli special forces raided a home in Rafah in an operation to free two Israeli-Argentine hostages, 60-year-old Fernando Simon Meman and 70-year-old Luis Har. They were both found to be in good condition after being held captive since October 7th. On Sunday, President Biden spoke by phone with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The White House said Biden warned Netanyahu against a ground invasion of Rafah unless there's a, quote, credible and executable plan for ensuring the safety and support for the more than one million people sheltering there, unquote. Authorities in Egypt have threatened to suspend a key peace treaty with Israel if Rafah is invaded. Hamas has also warned an Israeli invasion of Rafah will torpedo ongoing truce talks. The European Union also warned against a ground invasion of Rafah, with one top EU official saying it could lead to a, quote, unspeakable humanitarian catastrophe, unquote. Israel carried out numerous airstrikes on Rafah over the weekend, including one that leveled a five-story home, killing at least eight people. 
I am searching for my niece. She was two months old. My sister and her husband are sleeping in their room, and my mother and my other sister with her children in the living room. Me and my father in the room over here. Suddenly, a rocket fell on us. My sister, her husband, and their children, including my niece, who is two months old, all gone. This all comes as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu faces increasing pressure at home to secure the release of the remaining hostages in Gaza. Earlier today, a relative of the two Israeli-Argentine hostages, Fried and Rafa, called for Israel to reach a deal now. And we know about the discussions in Cairo or in Paris and others between the Hamas, between Israeli, with the mediators. Please be serious and strike a deal. The Israeli people needs the deal done. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, today. We want it done as soon as possible in order for to give us some breathe. We must breathe a little bit here. Hind Rajab, the six-year-old Gazan girl who'd been missing for nearly two weeks, was found dead on Saturday. Relatives found Hind's body inside a car, alongside the dead bodies of five of her family members. The bodies of two rescue workers who were attempting to reach Hind were also discovered. Audio of Hind's harrowing call with emergency dispatchers was heard around the world as the terrified girl begged for someone to come get her as an Israeli tank approached her. The car where Hind was found was covered in bullet holes. The Palestine Red Crescent Society said Israeli forces also targeted its ambulance as it arrived on the scene. Emergency workers Yusuf Seno and Ahmed Al-Madun had found their way to Hind, but it appeared to have been killed by Israeli fire just yards from her vehicle. This is Hind's mother, Wissam Hamada, after she learned of her daughter's killing. My heart is completely destroyed over my daughter. Two weeks, they killed them. Two weeks, they were in that car. I've told the world from day one, please go get Hind. God is the only one sufficient for us. Everyone failed us. I will tell God on the day of judgment about my daughter. I swear I will never forgive you or any human involved or any human rights organization. A court in the Netherlands has ordered the Dutch government to stop exporting U.S.-made F-35 fighter jet parts to Israel. In the ruling, one of the judges wrote, quote, It is undeniable that there's a clear risk that the exported F-35 parts are used in serious violations of international humanitarian law, unquote. In November, Oxfam and Amnesty International sued the Dutch government, saying the arms transfers violated the Netherlands' obligations under international law to prevent war crimes. One of President Biden's top foreign policy aides has admitted the administration has made missteps in the Middle East. During a closed-door meeting with Arab-American leaders in Michigan, Deputy National Security Advisor Jonathan Feiner was recorded saying, quote, We are very well aware that we have missteps in the course of responding to this crisis since October 7th, unquote. During the conversation, Feiner also said, quote, I do not have any confidence in this current government of Israel, unquote. Feiner traveled to Michigan after Arab-American leaders vowed to vote uncommitted in this month's Michigan primary due to Biden's support for Israel's assault on Gaza. 
Here in New York, hundreds of Palestinian rights activists occupied the Museum of Modern Art Saturday, forcing the museum to close to the public. Protesters unfurled massive banners and handed out mock MoMA pamphlets in which they called out museum trustees for their investments in Israeli weaponry and other industries. Another protest was organized outside the Brooklyn Museum. The actions came as an open letter signed by over 100 artists and other cultural workers condemned the, quote, disgraceful silence of our institutions as Israel commits genocide in Gaza, unquote. In Providence, Rhode Island, Brown University students ended an eight-day-long hunger strike demanding Brown divest from companies supplying Israel with military equipment. The students say they'll continue fighting for divestment and for Palestinian rights. In November, a Palestinian-American student at Brown, Hisham Ortani, was left paralyzed after being shot along with two friends in Burlington, Vermont, while they visited over the Thanksgiving holiday. Talks have resumed in Iraq that could result in the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq more than 20 years after the 2003 U.S. invasion. The United States currently has about 2,500 soldiers in Iraq and another 900 troops in Syria. Calls for the troops to withdraw have increased after the U.S. carried out a number of deadly drone attacks on militia groups in Baghdad. In other military news, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been hospitalized again. This time, he's being treated in a critical care unit for a bladder issue. On Sunday, he temporarily transferred power to his deputy. Austin was diagnosed with prostate cancer in December. Former President Donald Trump is facing widespread criticism after saying he would encourage Russia to attack NATO allies who pay too little money into the military alliance. Trump made the comment during a campaign rally in South Carolina. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. And the money came flowing in. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg issued a statement in response to Trump's remarks, quote, any suggestion that allies will not defend each other undermines all of our security, including that of the U.S., and puts American and European soldiers at increased risk, he said. Finland held national elections Saturday. The conservative former prime minister, Alexander Stubb, won the presidential election with over 51 percent of the vote. It was Finland's first election since joining NATO. In Pakistan, candidates affiliated with the jailed former prime minister Imran Khan have pulled off a major upset by winning 101 seats more than any other party in last week's election, even though Khan's PTI party was formally barred from running. But the PTI-affiliated candidates fell short of winning a majority of seats, giving other parties a chance to form a coalition government. Supporters of Khan accused the military of rigging Thursday's vote by taking drastic actions, including shutting down the country's cell phone service on election day. Today's demonstration is a protest against the forces that have stolen the people's mandate. This is a protest against those forces that do not accept public opinion and think they can impose their decision on the public. 
In Sudan, U.N. officials estimate about 18 million people are facing emergency levels of hunger, a figure that's doubled since last year due to months of fighting between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces. The humanitarian crisis has also triggered the world's largest displacement of children ever seen in Sudan, with over 700,000 likely to suffer severe acute malnutrition, according to UNICEF. This is the agency's spokesperson, James Elder. First, the world's largest displacement of children has been seen in Sudan. Four million children have been displaced. That's just over 13,000 children displaced every single day for the past 300 days. Safety gone, worldly possessions gone, hope fading. Second, the consequences of the past 300 days mean that more than 700,000 children are likely to suffer the most dangerous form of malnutrition this year. Uh, UNICEF won't be able to treat more than 300,000 of those without improved access and without additional support. In that case, tens of thousands would likely die. Burma's ruling military junta has imposed mandatory military service for all young men and women. Under the new law, all men age 18 to 35 and women age 18 to 27 will be ordered to serve for two years, though that can be extended to five years in the event of an ongoing state of emergency. This month marks three years since the military seized power in a 2021 coup and ousted elected leader Aung San Suu Kyi and other members of her party. Earlier this month, Burma's U.N. ambassador appealed to the international community to do more to help his country. Last three years, over 44,000 people have been brutally killed by the military. More than 2.6 million people have been internally displaced. Over 86,000 civilian properties, including religious buildings, have been destroyed or burned down by the hunter forces. Almost 19 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance. Half of the population has been thrown into poverty. Meanwhile, Amnesty International is calling for a war crimes probe over the military bombing of a church in the Burmese city of Sagayin in January, which killed 17 people, including two children who were attending a Sunday service. Amnesty is urging the U.N. Security Council to refer the Burmese junta to the International Criminal Court. In news from Somalia, the militant group al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility for an attack on a military base in Mogadishu that killed four Emirati troops and a Bahraini military officer. The foreign troops were at the base to train Somali soldiers in their fight against al-Shabaab. A jury in Washington, D.C., has awarded a million dollars to the climate scientist Michael Mann, who'd sued two right-wing critics for defamation. In a statement, Mann said, quote, I hope this verdict sends a message that falsely attacking climate scientists is not protected speech, unquote. And the city of Minneapolis has agreed to pay $950,000 to a group of journalists who were attacked by Minneapolis police while they covered protests over the police killing of George Floyd. In its lawsuit, the American Civil Liberties Union of Minnesota had accused police of tear gassing and pepper spraying journalists, as well as shooting some journalists in the face with hard foam bullets. The ACLU said several journalists were arrested and threatened at gunpoint. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman.
Palestinian health officials say overnight Israeli strikes on Rafah in southern Gaza have killed at least 67 people. As concern grows, Israel will soon launch a full-scale ground invasion. Over a million displaced Palestinians have sought refuge in Rafah, which borders Egypt, after Israel claimed it was a safe zone. Palestinians in Rafah say a mosque and several houses were hit by the overnight Israeli strikes. It was an Apache firing with a really loud noise, the F-16s fired, the Cobra, the drone, all kinds of aircraft. Terror, terror, so much terror. They wiped out mosques, people, and displaced people. They kept saying, go to Rafah, go to Rafah, and people came here, and then you target them? Over the weekend, Israel carried out numerous airstrikes in Rafah, including one that leveled a five-story home, killing at least eight people. My sister and her husband are sleeping in their room, and my mother and my other sister with her children in the living room. Me and my father in the room over here. Suddenly, a rocket fell on us. My sister, her husband, and their children, including my niece, who is two months old, all gone. The overnight airstrikes came as Israeli forces carried out an Operation Rafa to free two Israeli-Argentine hostages who were found to be in good condition. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu faces increasing pressure at home to secure the release of the remaining hostages in Gaza. Earlier today, a relative of the two men freed in Rafa called for Israel to reach a deal now. And we know about the discussions in Cairo or in Paris and others between the Hamas, between Israeli, with the mediators. Please be serious and strike a deal. The Israeli people needs the deal done. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, today. We want it done as soon as possible in order for to give us some breath. We must breathe a little bit here. On Sunday, President Biden spoke by phone with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, warning against Israel launching a ground invasion of Rafah. Aid agencies fear the offensive would cause massive casualties, while UNICEF has warned an escalation of Israel's attacks and Rafah will cause hunger and disease to skyrocket. Hamas cautioned an Israeli invasion of Rafah will torpedo ongoing negotiations for a truce. Authorities in Egypt have also threatened to suspend a key peace treaty with Israel if Rafah is invaded. For more, we're going directly to Rafah to speak with Duha Latif. She's a 29-year-old teacher from Gaza trying to evacuate Rafah with her young children, six-year-old Amir and one-and-a-half-year-old Karim. Dua, welcome to Democracy Now!, especially under these difficult circumstances. We appreciate you being with us. You are a native of Rafa. Can you describe the situation there now? Hello, Amy. Thanks for uh, hosting. Uh, uh, I'm sure most of you saw the news yesterday and what happened in Rafah. It was the worst night in my life, and I really cannot believe that I am still alive. And actually, situation here is very terrible. Rafah is a small city, and now 1.5 million people in Rafah, and Rafah is just 55. Uh, square kilometers, which means that per square kilometers in Rafah, they around 24,000 Palestinians. Just imagine.
imagine this, Amy. Therefore, it's very difficult to get food, water, or medicine in addition to the spread of diseases because of large population. Also, Rafah is a city with no hospital, no electricity, no bakeries since four months. This is the situation here. You are 29 years old. You're a teacher, Dua, in Rafa. Right. Yes, that's right. The city has swelled to four times the population. Uh, can you talk about your attempts to get out with your two little ones, your one-and-a-half-year-old and your six-year-old? Um. The issue of leaving Rafah and uh, evacuation to Egypt is very complicated and it's very, very expensive because we need the approval of the Egyptian side to grant us exit uh, arrangements, which cost a large amount of money. And this is what we don't have at the present time. And this is what GoFundMe created a GoFundMe account because we don't have money to get out from Gaza. Uh, what do you mean? How much money does it cost to leave Gaza? What are you raising money for? In fact, uh, I can't uh, determine that exactly, but uh, I can tell you that the amount required to be paid to exit Gaza is considered somewhat high, very high, especially in our current case. This amount includes the travel cost and expensive coordination, in addition to what is required when we arrive in Egypt uh, side. Uh, of course, if we're still alive, such as renting a place to stay and buy clothes and food and children needs. Uh, actually, we don't know to whom this money goes, and I cannot mention specific side, but what I know, it's that we have to pay this amount for one of Egyptian offices. Can you ex talk about your little ones and how they are processing what's happening right now? Do you hear bombing, shelling around you? Yes, yes. Last night, maybe you uh, see this in, uh, in the news. Yani, it was terrible, and we are uh, oh, yani, that my children was scared all the night, and they crying. And uh, maybe you see what happened in the news, uh, and uh, what happened really is very, very hard and difficult. I'm wondering if you heard the relative of the two Israeli-Argentine hostages who the Israeli military freed in Rafah. Their relative said, please have a truce now. It is not enough that you have freed our two loved ones. Yes, no, I don't uh, hear this. And uh, yani, I am like you. I hear this just from the news. So, if you can talk about, at this point, what message you have for President Biden, you may have heard that his aides are saying that he's made mistakes in dealing with the Middle East. What message do you have for President Biden? Um, I will uh, send a message. Uh, Yani, I have two children, and they are always nervous and afraid from the voices they hear around us and always ask me questions. I don't have the answer, uh, uh, the answers for it. Mom, when can we get out? Mom, when we will eat burger? Mom, when we can uh, go back to school? And it's difficult. 
to call children while the mother needs uh, somebody to call her. So my message to President Biden, we are innocent civilians and we have no fault in what is happening. Our children deserve to live a normal life like the rest of world's children. Just one word, President Biden, cease fire now. You have the power to make it happen right now. And Dua, do you have access to clean water also? Have you taken in refugees from other parts of Gaza at this point into your own home? And actually, Amy, yes, I have. But there is only canned food, beans and tuna. For four months, my children are in a growing stage and need healthy and, use, and useful food like egg, milk, fruits. And all of this doesn't exist at the present time. There is no clean water because of the Because of this, my young son, Karim, one and a half years, suffered from uh, intestinal catar. And also there is no medicine for this. Um, also about uh, the refugee, um, yes, uh, our situation like uh, the situation of thousand people here in Rafah. Yes, I have many refugees in my home. They are my relatives from Gaza and northern Gaza. Every home in Rafah is full of refugees. Well, I thank you so much for taking this time speaking to us from Rafah. Amy, I want just uh, to say a word, can I? Yes. We are urgently trying to leave Rafah, but we need money to leave. We have a GoFundMe account. If people want to support us by donating or sharing or help my family, we need to leave to keep my family safe. Well, Dua Latif, I thank you so much for being with us. 29-year-old teacher from Rafah trying to evacuate there with her young children, her six-year-old Amir and her one-and-a-half-year-old Karim. When we come back, we'll speak with Palestinian human rights attorney Noura Arakat as the U.S., the European Union, countries around the world warn Israel against a ground invasion of Rafah. Stay with us. by Amal Merkis. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In the United States, the European Union, countries around the world are warning Israel against a ground invasion of Rafah in southern Gaza, where over one million Palestinians have sought refuge from the rest of Gaza. 
One top EU official said it could lead to a, quote, unspeakable humanitarian catastrophe. Authorities in Egypt have threatened to suspend a key peace treaty with Israel if Rafah is invaded. Hamas has also warned an Israeli invasion of Rafah will torpedo ongoing truce talks. For more, we're joined by Palestinian human rights attorney Noura Erakat and an associate professor at Rutgers University, author of the book Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Noura. If you can start off by responding to this threat over the weekend, that plans are being readied to invade, uh, for Israel to invade Rafah, and the world, countries around the world, warning Israel not to do this. Apparently, um, President Biden doing that in a phone call with Netanyahu as well. Your response and what this would mean. Good morning, Amy. Uh, it might be a bit refreshing to hear these warnings sound off from across the world in various capitals, but they are completely and wholly inadequate, given that we know that this is a plausible genocide, given that we know what Israel has said, despite multiple warnings, it in created a ground invasion on October 27th. It has destroyed all of the hospitals. It has blown up all of the universities. It has created a situation of starvation, of a lack of even water. There is a humanitarian crisis that even without another bomb falling will lead to sure deaths of thousands of Palestinians. These capitals, these states, have an arsenal of diplomatic options available to them to stop a genocide, first and foremost, is a U.N. Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire. Short of that is the cutting of weapons transfers, as has the Netherlands High Court demanded this morning of stopping the transfer of F-35 jet parts to Israel. Belgium has stopped weapons transfers. Japan has cut military contracts. Short of that, these, these states can cut diplomatic ties. What is it? What is it to the population of Rafah now basically bracing themselves for more massacre, for, for, for warnings to a state that is, is responsible under international law and accountable? And if it is not responsible or accountable, it is either a complete rogue state that must be isolated by everybody, or it means that all these other countries are complicit and basically covering uh, responsibility for themselves by issuing empty uh, warnings. I wanted to go to that issue of the Netherlands court ordering the Dutch government to stop exporting. These are U.S.-made F-35 jet parts uh, being stored in the Netherlands to Israel. In the ruling, one of the judges wrote, quote, it is undeniable that there's a clear risk that the exported F-35 parts are used in serious violations of international humanitarian law. Um, in November, Oxfam and Amnesty International sued the Dutch government, saying the arms transfers violate Netherlands' obligations under international law to prevent war crimes. Are you seeing this um, escalating around the world and other countries doing the same? Certainly, Germany gives even more weapons and, of course, the United States the most. I am seeing a surge. We have seen for the five, uh, past five months, the only thing that has kept humanity together is the surge of civil society, which has waged lawsuits, which has risen in protest, to do the work that states have failed to do. 
We see in the United States, the Center for Constitutional Rights bring a lawsuit um, in, in the Northern District of California where the judge agreed that the ICJ was correct, that this is undeniable, a case of genocide, but he doesn't have the jurisdiction in order to stop the Biden administration. We saw the highest court in the world say the same thing, that this is plausibly genocide. We are seeing a series of judicial decisions that are coming to the same conclusion, but none of them can be enforced without political will, which is being impeded in the Security Council by the United States. Let's be clear. The ICJ on January 26th, when it, when it issued its provisional orders, said that, it, that the international community has a duty and a responsibility according to its responsibility under the Genocide Convention not to perpetuate Israel's genocidal campaign. We see Israel directly violating those provisional orders. Nearly 2,000 Palestinians have been killed since January 26. We know for a fact that they have impeded the access to humanitarian aid going so far as the Israeli Navy shooting, lobbying at UN humanitarian convoys uh, from the, the Mediterranean Sea. We also see uh, very clearly a continuing incitement to genocide most recently in the convening of a far-right coalition of, uh, I think, 11 ministers in government under the banner of, of settlement brings security and victory. There is an explicit campaign to depopulate the Gaza Strip, to resettle it, no one is mincing words. Everybody is watching, covering themselves with these, 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 uh, empty promises and warnings as Israel continues with its campaign. And this is a warning to the world. This is a warning to the world that we are watching, that this is very blatant and being exposed. In this situation that we have right now, in the worst case scenario, Israel will continue with its campaign. Egypt, which does, not, which is trying to prevent this from happening, will likely create a buffer zone uh, in the Sinai. If Egypt, if, if Israel is actually successful in pushing out the Palestinians, they will be stuck in that buffer zone, as have refugees from Syria been stuck at the buffer zone with Jordan and Iraq. That is the worst case scenario. Israel's Israel or Netanyahu telling the world that they're going to evacuate the Palestinians up north mean nothing when the north has been decimated. Rafah is the last standing city. They should not be taken. There's nowhere to go north. Israel must stop its genocidal campaign now. If it wants to offer refuge to Palestinians, it must offer refuge to Palestinians within its within what is historic Palestine, Palestine 1948, where they can actually be housed safely and where we know Israel does not want them and will return them to Gaza. There are many options at our disposal, and yet none of them are being accessed in this moment. I want to ask you your thoughts on this latest development, <clears throat> the overnight airstrikes in Rafah, coming as Israeli forces carried an operation, an operation to free two Israeli-Argentine hostages who were found to be in good condition, Fernando Simon Marman, age 60, and Louis Har, age 70. Uh, earlier today, a relative of the two Israeli hostages, freed in Rafah, called for Israel to reach a deal now. And we know about the discussions in Cairo or in Paris and others between the Hamas, between Israeli, with the mediators. Please be serious and strike a deal. The Israeli people needs the deal done. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, today. We want it done as soon as possible in order for to give us some 
breathe. We must breathe a little bit. Now, yeah. this is very interesting because uh, this is a man whose beloved ones have been held since October 7th. But he's saying we cannot rest unless all the hostages are freed. And he's calling for a truce. But that is not what Netanyahu is calling for. Are you concerned that finding these hostages in an apartment building in Rafah um, will lead to more bombing and attacks in Rafah or to justify a full-scale assault? Amy, Israel is not concerned. Not Israel, the, the Israeli government is not concerned with its hostages. If they were, they would have engaged in good faith negotiations. The diplomatic negotiations led to the relief of 136 hostages. That wasn't any military operations. After five months, they've only extracted two hostages. We know that the families want a truce. We know that the government is opposing a truce. We know that the concern is not the hostages. Israel shot to kill two of them, two of their own who were raising white flags and speaking in Hebrew, giving us an idea that this is not a genu this is not a legitimate war. This is a genocidal campaign of extermination. Last night, last night, the images that came out of Rafah are horrifying. There was a young girl, her legs cut off, hanging off of a wire by her shirt. This is disproportionate, excessive force that is meant to terrorize a population that is telling them, you have no life here. There is no future here. You must leave. That is the message that is being sent. We're seeing young children who are forced to be far older than their age. A young boy who escaped bombing, having his head and the blood cleaned off of it, telling the world, I am not scared. How can he not be scared in this situation? How are all of us not terrified? We have taken away life for these children. We are decimating their future, even if we do survive. Images of babies who are being removed from the rubble with only two limbs, with no family members left. What is their future? And yet we're obscuring these atrocities. We're obscuring these genocidal campaigns with words of distraction. We're taking it and abstracting it to um, warfare and strategy, hostages and the negotiations. When the humanitarian situation speaks for itself, when tribunals have told us repeatedly, this is a genocide. It must be ended unequivocally. And that is incumbent upon us now before we see the last city in Gaza, the one that is normally home to 220,000 Palestinians, now housing one and a half million Palestinians, 80 percent of the population in tents and in dire humanitarian situation. We should be rushing in to treat them with medicine, with food, with water, with um, adequate care, rather than now preparing uh, massacres for them, like the speaker before you, Dua, who has created a GoFundMe to save herself and her children. This is our responsibility. Last word on this. There is a concept in international law known as state responsibility, where a state can, must deal with the action, the consequences of its actions. It cannot, Israel cannot say, cannot say that it is now fighting a war of self-defense, which it doesn't have a right to under international law against territory that it occupies. But if those actions are illegal, it must bear the consequences for them. Israel has imposed a siege against international law for 17 years, imposed a military, a prolonged military occupation for 56 years, imposed an apartheid regime, which is a crime against humanity, 
that the international community has said is an apartheid regime and still asking the world for an exception and blaming the Palestinians as the assailants as it is committing a genocide and now asking the world to let it commit genocide as a form of exception that somehow it is like any other situation and rather than meet that with the full force of diplomatic and international will to rebuff it instead we're allowing Israel to create that exception which will make none of the world safe when other powerful countries and nuclear powers decide that they want to decimate uh, inconvenient population a native population as in this case in order to fulfill its national interests it defies all of the logic of international legal institutions and international law which are set up to regulate things like this in this very moment Uh, We just have 10 seconds, but you have a top aide to President Biden admitting that the Biden administration has made many missteps uh, since the beginning of this. What do you think they could do, a single action that could make the greatest difference when it comes to what Israel does in Gaza, Nora Arakat? They can abstain in the Security Council and allow an immediate ceasefire to take place. Biden can pick up the phone and tell Netanyahu to stop. They can actually stop the weapons transfers or even revoke this uh, supplemental budget, which plans to resettle Palestinians in what will be an ethnic cleansing campaign and complicity in genocide. There are so many things to be done. These are empty words aimed at the 2024 elections as opposed to aimed at compliance with international law to meet our duty and responsibility under the Genocide Convention. Nura Erekat, we want to thank you for being with us. Palestinian human rights attorney, associate professor at Rutgers University, author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. When we come back, Bishop William Barber on... uh, plan to have the Poor People's Campaign march on 30 state legislatures to catalyze the voting power of poor and low-wage workers ahead of November's elections. Stay with us. covered by Nikki Thomas. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As the 2024 election heats up, the Poor People's Campaign announced this month the plans to catalyze the voting power of poor and low-wage workers across the United States. As part of a 40-week operation, thousands of volunteers are working to mobilize 15 million voters with the first major coordinated actions taking place outside 30 state houses on March 2nd, three days before Super Tuesday. The voting bloc described as the sleeping giant could potentially determine the outcome of the elections. 
Activists say nearly half of U.S. voters are living in poverty or low-wage households. This is Alabama activist Linda Burns, a former Amazon worker, speaking at a news conference with the Poor People's Campaign last week. $180 a week. $180 a week. Amazon let me go because I was helping organize the union. We didn't get the union in Alabama, but I'm going to do everything in my power. I'm going to stand in solidarity. We're joined right now in Durham, North Carolina, by Bishop, by Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Here in New York, we're joined by Michael Zweig, founding director of the Center for Study of Working Class Life, professor emeritus of economics at State University of New York, Stony Brook, where he received the SUNY Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Teaching. His new book is called Class, Race and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Bishop Barber wrote the book's introduction. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Bishop Barber, this is an enormous undertaking, as uh, the talking heads and the corporate media networks talk about the strength of the economy and how it's only getting better. Talk about what you're seeing on the ground and how people are organizing. Well, Amy and Michael, we have to have an enormous undertaking because we have an enormous economic and moral problem. In 2019, before covid we had 140 million poor and low-wage, low-wealth brothers and sisters in this country, 43% of the adult population, going into COVID. Coming out of COVID, we now have 135 million. It went down some, about 112 million, then it went back up. The, the, it went down because of investments that were made during COVID, but they were not continued. And poverty right now is the fourth leading cause of death. Over 800 people are dying every day from poverty and low wages. On the ground, people are hurting. People who make less than $15 an hour, we have not had a pay raise, Amy, since 2009. There are 52 million people who make less than a living wage of $15 an hour. We had 58 senators during COVID to vote no on raising the wages of essential workers. Uh, we've had, even during COVID, we still have 87 million people who are uninsured or underinsured. And so we know now there is not a state in this country where if 30 percent, 20 to 30 percent of poor and low wage workers who are eligible to vote, that have been infrequent, would vote that they could not change the outcome of the election. In some states, Amy, you, you have a situation where you have almost a million poor low-wage voters uh, who did not vote in the last two elections, and the election was only won at large by 10,000 votes or 40,000 votes or 100,000 votes. Poor and low-wage people are saying, we must move this power. So March the 2nd, we're having a launching. It's not just a must, a launching of a 42-week campaign to mobilize 15 million poor and low-wage voters. We're going to raise up people in every state that will be trained in every form of voter mobilization, from technology to the old way of just getting and walking on the turf and knocking on doors, uh, to touch these voters. Because right now, the democracy could literally be changed and saved 
by the power of poor low wage workers. But it's not just holding on to the democracy. We're saying, what kind of democracy do you want? We want one with living wages, we want under ends poverty as the fourth leading cause of death. We want full funding of public education. We want women's rights. We want to stop the liberation of guns. We are uniting around those things. And why state houses, Amy? Because state houses are where the political insurrections are taking place. Everything that we have on our flyer for March 2nd, uh, you can either stop or start in a state house. We're challenging both sides of the aisle. And then on June 15th, we're coming to challenge the Congress to launch the summer in initiative of this massive mobilization on June 15th. But we must have a massive movement because we have a massive moral and economic problem. I want to bring Michael Zweig into this conversation. Um, you're on the New York State Coordinating Committee of the Poor People's Campaign, and you've written this book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Can you talk about the fact that well, Columbia University found only 46 percent of voters with household incomes less than twice the federal poverty rate cast a vote in 2016, as compared to 68 percent turnout rate for voters who had a household income more than twice the poverty line. This leads politicians to ignore whole swaths of people and what you think then needs to be done and how the Poor People's Campaign is addressing this, Michael. Well, my book, uh, thank you, Amy, for having me here today, and uh, Bishop Barber, good to be with you. Um, the task, I think, is to understand, first of all, why it is and w w that we have these outrages that cause poverty and that cause the uh, women of this country to lose their agency and lose their right to health care, that uh, threaten the environment, all of these issues that are brought together and that have a special effect on poor and low-wage workers. These are not just things that just happen or fall out of the sky. They come from a, the functioning of a capitalist system, and in particular, the capitalist system in the United States, uh, sort of capitalism with U.S. characteristics. I think that we need to, as we build our movements, build them with an understanding of what it is that we're dealing with and what we have to confront in order to address the inequalities, in order to address the injustices that the Poor People's Campaign is organized to do, is to bring together what Bishop Barber has often called a fusion movement that isn't just one piece of the puzzle, but all of those things brought together. And I think that this book, uh, uh, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, is a resource to try to get that understanding and to bring it forward so that we can all be marching together, uh, no matter what our particular movement, our particular concern is, that we all echo each other, we all come together in one mighty force. And that is both a political question of mobilization, but it's also an, an intellectual question, a question of analysis and, and, and political education. And what this book is trying to do is to be a resource for all of that organizing and mobilizing that's going on. 
We just heard a low-wage worker, an Amazon worker, um, talking about uh, why it's so important to organize, Michael Zweig. Uh, in what ways can the labor movement leverage collective bargaining and advocacy efforts against corporate entities like Amazon? Um, also talk about the significance of the United Auto Workers and what they did in their strike that led to so much advancement? The UAW strike, the auto worker strike under the leadership of Sean Fain, was really a watershed moment, I think, in the current labor scene and the current political climate in the country. And I say that because it was, for the first time, a strike that uh, attacked all three major U.S. automakers simultaneously, and it struck each one selectively. And it did that in a way which also brought a public message that the corporate leadership is getting 40 percent wage increases, 50 percent wage increases. They're making millions of dollars a year, and the auto workers are not getting any piece of that. And so the, the, the task there was to bring forward those demands in a context that made sense to the American people and, of course, to the auto workers themselves. And I think that what was also important is that Sean Fain addressed the question as a class question. He talked about his workers as working-class people. When President Biden went to the Warren-Michigan picket line, he talked about the workers are in the, are in the middle class, and the union makes the middle class. No, the union makes working people have a better life, and they're still working-class people. And Sean Fain understands that, and also understands in the history of the UAW that, and other parts of the labor movement, that the l labor movement, the unions, have an obligation to, to talk about the whole structure of society, to go to the root and go to the core of why it is that they have to fight every day for a better wage and for better working conditions, why it's unacceptable to have workers paid so low that they have to get uh, uh, food stamps, that they have to get public assistance in order to make ends meet, and the corporations can go ahead and make billions and billions of dollars. What Sean Fain and what the rest of the labor movement is coming, I think, to understand is that it's important to take on the whole range of questions that, are, that affect working people, not just at the workplace, but also in their communities. So that means hunger issues, that means issues of women's equality, that means racial justice, that means the environment. All those questions are questions for working people to address and to address in conjunction with those other movements that are outside the labor movement per se, just as those other movements need to pay attention to and take strength from what the labor movement is doing. And that kind of fusion movement, which uh, the Poor People's Campaign is about, is what I'm trying to get across also in this book. Bishop Barber, Amy, Amy, yes. May I, may I, yeah, we also don't have to stop using the language working class. Poor, poor. See, part of our own struggle inside of the movement, and, I'm, and I say to Michael and others, we can't back up on the language poor because it's not used. The poor, the poor working class, because we don't use that language. We fall back into a trap of capitalism by saying work. We're saying poor and low wage workers. We're saying workers that 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 are um, um, every day hustle and and hard and still live poor and low wage. You know, one third of all poor folk live in the South. 
One of the movements that actually helped to get to UAW was when we challenged Smithfield in the South, in North Carolina, and won, brought poor, low-wage uh, uh, black, white, Latinos together in a small, small Tataria, North Carolina. Nobody ever heard about it. And they said we couldn't win. We have to go to these states because what we say, for instance, in the South, we say those are red states, but we don't know what color those states are because we've not really mobilized. One third of all poor people live in the South. There's not a state in the South where if you mobilize 25% of poor and low-wage workers, that it would not change the outcome. In Florida, the percentage is under 3% of, of those infrequent voters. In North Carolina, it's under 19%. In Georgia, it's under 7%. In, in uh, uh, all over the South and all over the country. In Wisconsin, it's less than 1%. So we, even in our language, and we have to say poor and low-wage workers, there's not a state in this country, we call battleground states, where the margin of victory was within three percent for the presidential election that poor and low-wage workers don't make up 40 percent of the electorate. There's not a state in this country where poor and low-wage workers don't make up over 30 percent of the electorate. This is not also about the system, but it is also about poor and low-wage people grabbing their power and understanding the power that we have not used. Remember, it was Dr. King in 1965, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March, who said the greatest fear of the racist aristocracy in this country would be for the masses of Negroes and the masses of poor white working folk to come together and form a, a voting bloc that could fundamentally uh, uh, deal with the economic architecture of this country. You know, I'm not, I've just released a book called White Poverty, and it's looking through the lies and the mythology pushed down by the Southern strategy to literally divide poor and low-wage black and white people as a way of continuing to exacerbate the divisions of race and class. This is a power move for poor and low-wage folk, poor and low-wage folk, religious leaders and allies. And lastly, one of the things Sean did with, with UAW is he made it a moral issue. He lifted it up and said, this is not, just, it's a class issue, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue about work, but it's a moral issue. And when he framed it that way, it actually helped more people to grab on what he was seeing. Bishop Barber, before we go, I wanted to turn to a different issue. Um, we just have a minute, and I wanted to ask you about the moral case for a ceasefire that you've written about in Gaza. In November, you joined a group of Christian leaders for a vigil outside the White House demanding President Biden support a ceasefire in Gaza and said, quote, we must join forces with Jews and Christians and Muslims around the world who are calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and the safe return of all hostages and civilian prisoners and to stop the killing. Your final thoughts on this as Israel weighs a full-scale invasion of Rafah? We should, all moral leaders, needed to say no to what Hamas did to children and women, and no, no, no to what Israel, the Israeli government, and Netanyahu is now continuing to do. Uh, in the original argument I wrote about Hamas, I also challenged the apartheid state that the Netanyahu regime had had in Israel. We said we must speak as one voice, Christians, Muslims, and Jews, to say the indiscriminate killing of women and children in this war is immoral. And let me give you a scripture straight from the text that, that Muslims, Jews, and Christians all agree on. It's Isaiah 10. It ought to be a framework for how we move forward. Woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children pray, P-R-E-Y. 
That is a moral text from the ancient Hebrew scriptures that Muslims and Christians all agree on. And it is a prophetic challenge to governments. And that must be our prophetic challenge to what Netanyahu and them are doing today. Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, speaking to us from Durham, North Carolina. And Michael Zweig, economist and author of Class, Race and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Bishop Barber wrote the introduction. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes. Happy birthday, Messiah. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.